Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as today we consider the theological ramifications of Adam's sin, what we studied last week. Theological ramifications of Adam's sin. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig fig leaves together. And made themselves loin coverings. Although chronologically Eve sinned first, it's the theological ramifications of Adam's sin that we consider this morning. When Adam took the fruit from the hand of the woman and ate it, the results were devastating. Devastating. Not only to man and to the woman, but to all of their offspring. And the damage overflowed even into, in a sense anyway, nature itself. Paul tells us in Romans 8.32 that the whole creation groans and suffers under the pain of childbirth together even until now. The choice to sin was no small thing. We do it so often that it almost passes off as something insignificant to us. But the choice to sin by Adam, was no small thing. The New Testament explains to us that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. He knew full well what he was doing. And it's Adam's sin, then, that is passed down to the human race. That's what our scripture reading referred to this morning. For by one man, sin entered into the human race. It's Adam's sin that causes us to be born totally depraved. Now, the idea of being born depraved needs some explanation, I fear. When I think of depravity, I generally think of child pornographers or sexually abusive parents or rapists or, or maybe the three, fl- the three street thugs that murdered my friend Miguel Gomez. Miguel Gomez was 25 years old, a recent immigrant from Puerto Rico, legal immigrant from Puerto Rico, had a new young wife and, and was about to have a little baby girl. He was one of my workout partners for about three years in the late 80s, and he was uh, quite a workout partner. He was uh, Golden Gloves boxing champion down in Puerto Rico. He was uh, multiple black belts, and boy, you talk about sparring him, he'd, he'd put it on you. I mean, he had, had one of some of the fastest hands of anybody I've ever been around, and he was he was a neat guy, a pleasure to work with. And one day he came to us. We worked out very early in the morning. So he came to us this early this morning and he said, hey, listen, 
Uh, my wife is about to have our baby. It's going to be a baby girl, and I need to get a second job. For you see, he worked at Casolea as the busing tables. Wasn't making much money there. Wanted to provide for his family. And so he said, I'm going to get a second job. And I said, well, where are you going to get your job? And he said, well, I'm going to be a night, night worker at uh, Stop and Go up on the northern side of town. And all of us said, oh, Miguel, uh, don't, don't do that. It, well, let's, let's try to find you another job. He said, no, I've already taken it. And we said, well, those are dangerous jobs sometimes, particularly back in the late 80s. I don't know if you remember that, but those places were getting knocked off left and right, left and right and left and right. It was a bad time for those particular type of convenience stores. At least back then it was, and I think they've corrected some of it now, but it was, it was tough. And so he said, Miguel, it's a dangerous job. You're going to be a new father. You're going to have a new little baby. You don't want to go do that. And he insisted. Finally, we said, Miguel, we'll give you the money. How much are they going to pay you? We'll give you the money not to work there. And he said, no, no, I couldn't accept that. Well, one night, approximately one week after we had that conversation, approximately two days after his baby was born, or maybe it's a day and a half, Middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, three thugs were outside in front of the stop-and-go playing with a gun. And Miguel went outside and told him to put the gun away or he would have to call the police. Now, I know Miguel. There was only one gun. There were three people, but there was, only, there was only one gun. And I know Miguel. I'd worked out with him. I know for sure he could have taken that gun away from him. I know he could have done that. We, we worked on things like that. And he had the fastest hand. But he decided not to do that. Instead, he made the biggest mistake of what would be the rest of his very short life, and he turned his back on them and went back into the store, at which time they shot him in the back. He went down to his knees, and they came around and put the gun between his eyes and pulled a trigger. And when I think of depravity, that's what I think of. Those three thugs that killed Miguel Gomez left his wife a widow and... The child that had just been born, they were still in the hospital, fatherless. That's what I think of when I think of depravity. When I think of depravity, I certainly don't think of myself. I don't think of you when I think of depravity, and I certainly don't attach that term to myself. Sure, I've done things and said things and thought things that I regret, and so have you. I know that that's the case. Um, I wonder what it would be like if, if somehow God made us, if God did it because he would know even better than us, what the worst sin we've ever committed was and, ha- and, and attached it to a sign. You know, these guys that stand on the street corner trying to get you to come buy pizza or kolaches in the morning, and whatever the worst sin was and attached it to a sign and had us walk up and down Westheimer all day long with that sign. Then maybe we would kind of get the idea we were closer to depravity than we think. But, but still, we don't think of ourselves as depraved, yet the Scriptures portray us that way. Why? Why would God consider me depraved? He wouldn't do that, would He? Isn't that a term that's reserved for the really perverse people, the really bad people, the people that killed my friend Miguel Gomez? Isn't that a term that should be reserved for them? Well, this morning, we're going to consider the concept of total depravity from a theological standpoint and how what happened that day so long ago in the garden started the whole mess into motion. This is a serious issue. Oh, it's a very, very serious issue, but it's one that is foundational to our spiritual growth. For if we don't understand total depravity, and if we don't understand that we are totally depraved, 
even, even after salvation, there's a sense that we're, we're still fallen beings, but we've been, we're fallen beings that have been saved by, being saved by grace through faith. But the effects of the fall still mar our soul. If we don't get this, we will never understand grace. Never. If we don't realize from whence we came, we will never understand grace. And if we don't understand grace, we will never grow to a place of maturity with respect to our Creator. We learn in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that mankind, both male and female, were made in the image of God. And that's not said of any other of God's creation. We studied that a few weeks ago. That's what makes mankind, male and female, particularly special in God's creation. Now, all of creation is special, but particularly special in God's creation. We learned back a few weeks ago that in some respect, man resembles God. It doesn't mean that man has become God or that God created little gods with a little g, but rather man resembles God. The Protestant reformers regarded the image of God in man as referring to man's immaterial nature as fashioned for rational, moral, and spiritual fellowship with the Creator. John Calvin, the reformer, taught that the image of God in mankind includes all the excellence in which the nature of man surpasses all the other species of animals. Mankind has intellect, emotion, and will, all elements of what we would call personality. In addition, mankind has the ability to reason and the capacity, the capacity to make moral decisions, even if we make Improper decisions, quite often, we have the capacity to make free will, moral decisions in favor of God. Man is not merely conscious, but man is self-conscious. And God, too, possesses these qualities. God thinks, God feels, God chooses, or acts, if you prefer. Now, now we readily acknowledge, I, I readily acknowledge, that while God thinks, acts, and feels, and he, and he chooses, he does each one of these to the degree of perfection. And we don't. I acknowledge that. We feel, but our feelings are not necessarily perfect. But God's feelings are always perfect. Don't be afraid to say that God has feelings. It's actually very, it's most unscriptural to say that God doesn't have feelings. What we don't want to do is say, is, is foist our understanding of emotion back upon God. Because human emotion is often flawed. God's emotion is never flawed. When the Bible says God is love, it means it. And we don't have to redefine love in some way that we would never recognize it or understand it to come to that conclusion. But God thinks, acts, he feels just like we think, act, and feel. But he does it. He does it to the degree of perfection while we do it in an imperfect way. Human beings have spiritual life, ethical and moral sensitivities, conscience, and the capacity to represent God. This is all what we mean by being created in the image of God. Now, the relation of sin to that image, or that likeness or resemblance, if you prefer, is what we're referring to when we use the term theologically, total depravity. It's the relationship of the image of God, that, that and the status that we were created, and what sin did to that image, what sin did to that image in all of us, and that, that's what we've got to get. We are all totally depraved. I needed, before I came to Christ, I needed a Savior 
every bit as much as those three street thugs that killed my friend Miguel Gomez, who, by the way, are already out of prison and are walking the streets of Houston as far as I know or some other city. But the, the point is, I needed salvation. I needed a Savior every bit as bad as they did. And until we get that, we're never going to get to where we want to be with regard to our spiritual lives. I deeply desire, I deeply desire that all of us, starting with me, I mean, it's a great desire of my life, but that all of us grow into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. That's my desire for me, and it's my desire for you, that you grow into a deeper and more meaningful and more mature relationship with Jesus Christ, and that that growth takes place every single day. We all, and, and I'm assuming that we all, uh, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by means of grace through faith. I, I'm assuming that this morning. I, I trust that I'm accurate there. But I've been charged by God with a ministry of shepherding you toward an even deeper relationship with Him, a maturing relationship with Him. And we can't get there unless we have a solid foundation. And part of that foundation is realizing just how badly we needed a Savior. And that all starts in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. When we started the book of Genesis, I told you that in order to understand the Old Testament, we've got to understand, I mean, in order to understand, I'm sorry, in order to understand the New Testament, we've got to understand the Old Testament, or at least have a decent grasp of it. And in order to understand the Old Testament, we've got to understand the book of Genesis. And really, to understand what's going on in the book of Genesis, we've got to have a grasp of Genesis 1 through 3. It's critical. And some would even go further than that. In order to understand Genesis 1 through 3, we've got to zero in on chapter 3. That's why we'll spend several weeks, actually, in this chapter, not only in the exposition of the passage, but discussing some of the theological ramifications of what is said in this passage. If we, if we really are going to move toward a more mature relationship with our Savior, toward a deeper personal relationship with Him. We can't just fill ourselves up with emotion and think we're there. Now, there's nothing wrong with filling ourselves up with emotion, as long as it's appropriate emotion, as long as it's based upon the Word of God. But we can't shun theological instruction and say, well, I'm going to take this one off because he's talking about something theological. There's nothing more important in your life than theology. And guess what? Every single one of you is a theologian. Did you know that? Now, if you want to get a business card and put that on there, that's fine with me. You know? <laughs> theologian. Mike, theologian. John, theologian. David, theologian. Now, just insert your name in there. Theologian. Lawrence, theologian. Sounds good, doesn't it? We all, see, we're all theologians. We all have a theological philosophy. Every single one of us does. It's just some of us are better theologians than others because we base our theology on the Word of God. Everybody out there on the street has a theology. Now, some, for some, it's an a theology. Their, their theology is that there is no God. But all of us have a view toward God. Some people like to call it worldview. All of us have that kind of view. We just need to be more precise with it. If we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to have that deeper relationship with God, and we want that, right? I mean, I wouldn't ask for a show of hands, but I, I assume all of us want that. I do. Deeply, life is too short. I hear those people in Pakistan being burned alive in their homes, and I think, life is too short, and I am so blessed, and I've had so much opportunity not just to live in freedom, but to hear the Word, and they haven't. They get a, they get a weekly, or perhaps even at the most, a nightly cable television show, most of them. Most of their pastors are, are thoroughly untrained. 
We, we have an incredible blessing over here. Let's make the most of it. Let, let's grow in a, into a deeper relationship with our Lord by understanding intense and serious theological issues. Now, this is the point. After Adam sinned, after Adam sinned, he was totally incapable of affecting his own salvation. Now, that's, that's fundamental. It's foundational to everything else in Christianity. If we don't get that, we, are, we don't get Christianity, do we? It's not there. If we don't realize that we are totally unable to affect our own salvation, then we don't get it. Because you know what's going to happen? We're going to try to work our way to heaven. And so many people who would go by the name Christian today think that that's exactly what they've done. They think that, listen, I'm not as bad as those three, three street thugs that killed my friend Miguel Gomez. So I must be a little closer to God than they are. So I just need to do a few good works and perhaps I could earn my salvation the old-fashioned way. They're going to earn it. No, they're not. Adam and Eve both, but we're, we're discussing Adam this morning because it's his sin that's passed down to us. Adam was totally incapable of affecting his own salvation. We're going to see that next week. We're going to see that God, God hunts down Adam and Eve. He makes the first move. Adam and Eve could not have done it. We are just as incapable of accomplishing our own salvation. God had to make the first move with Adam and Eve, and he's gonna, he makes the first move with us as well. That's, that's exactly what he does. If you want to read ahead, you'll see. God goes and seeks them out, and they hide. But that's grace, and this is critical. Grace is one of those foundational things in the Christian life. If we don't get it, we don't get it. And we'll never get to where we want to be. And I don't know. Time may be short for somebody in this room. Time may be short. Your life could change in, in the blink of an eye. With a snap of fingers. It could be that different that quickly. And I'm not just talking about losing your job or, or your wife walking in saying, Hey, listen, we need to talk this afternoon. I'm not talking about any of those kind of things. I'm talking about you being taken out of here. Me being taken out of here. We've got to use every moment. And I don't care how old you are. Sometimes you think, well, I'm this particular age. That's, that's 50 years away from me. 60 years away from me. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. I don't know. We need to be serious with every day that God gives us. And this issue of total depravity, while it sounds on the surface offensive, I don't like being called depraved, but while it sounds on the surface offensive, we've got to get it and got to come to grips with it or we're never going to come to grips with anything else. Nothing else. We're not going to get it. We won't get spiritual gifts unless we understand total depravity. We won't get eschatology. We won't get ecclesiology. Any of these other subjects unless we get grace. And we only get grace by understanding total depravity. Now, what does total depravity mean? What happened when Adam sinned to the image of God in man? Remember, we said that there were, basically, and this is a simplification. We do into it in more detail a few weeks ago, but... Basically, we're speaking of intellect, emotion, and will, the three essential elements of personality that God and man share. What happened to intellect, emotion, and will, our intellect, emotion, and will, when Adam sinned and then passed that down to us? For we see that that's exactly what happened. If you'll recall from, from the reading of the Scripture this morning, through Adam, through Adam's representation of the entire human race, when he sinned, all of us sinned, every single one of us. Now, we may say, that's not quite fair, because that happened minimum 6,000 years ago. M minimum, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but minimum of that long ago. I wasn't there, so 
how can I be somehow affected by something that happened so long ago? That was the subject of the scripture reading in, in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That was the purpose of the scripture reading. I hope you can see that now. Well, Paul in Romans chapter 5 doesn't really explain the house. He explains the fact that that is. It is true that through one man's disobedience, everyone became condemned. Through one man's disobedience, everyone became condemned. But did you catch the last part of Romans 5? Did you catch that? Because because of one man's obedience, everyone has the ability or the possibility of coming to live with, with God forever. You see, there's a one man who disobeyed and all fell. That's Adam. There's one man who obeyed and all have the potential to receive eternal life, and that's Christ. Now, it's true. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. He represented me. On December 7th, 1941, most of you know what happened that day, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I think it was later that day or the very next morning, Franklin Roosevelt went before Congress and asked them to declare war on Japan. Now, my dad, I think, was about 10 years old at the time, and, and uh, he, was, he, he remembers that, and many of you do as well, what, what happened that day. Um, but I, I remember talking to him, I talked to him several times, and he cannot recall, and maybe it happened, but he cannot recall getting a phone, help, phone call from the White House that morning. <laughs> said, what would you do, Bill? What would you do with regard to the Japanese? He didn't get a call. My grandfather didn't get a call. Great-grandfather didn't get a call, and I bet yours didn't either. And maybe somebody in here did, but I bet you didn't. Because, you see, President Roosevelt had to make a corporate decision for the entire nation. And everybody, everybody felt the effects of that decision, whether you went to war or not. Even if you stayed here, if you read about that period, or many of you were there, you know, that was a difficult time. And, but, but you didn't have anything to, you didn't make that decision yourself. Now, had you been, had my father been in the same position that President Roosevelt was in, and had he had had the same data that President Roosevelt had, I presume he would have made the same decision. I don't know for sure, but I presume that. And you probably would have too. Now, with Adam, we can say we weren't there. But I'll tell you what, if we were there, we would have done the same thing. If the roles had been reversed and Adam was deceived and Eve was not, she'd have done the same thing. And the way I can prove that to you is that you, when I say, well, we're fallen beings, sinner, what do sinners do? Sinners sin. Yeah, we're fallen beings, but we're, in this room anyway, we're fallen beings that have been saved by the grace of God. For, of God. We have a new nature. Now, have you sinned since salvation? Nobody better shake their head no, or we're going to bring you up here and we'll question you. <laughs> of course you have. Willfully. Many times. So don't come to me and say, I would never have done that. Now, maybe you would have lasted longer. I don't know. It's possible. But we all have proven that we would have done the same thing. So Adam represented us when he sinned. So what happened? What happened to this image of God? Where do we get this idea of total depravity? Not partial depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity, meaning, meaning that every aspect of our being was damaged in some way by that sin. Well, in theology, we have a phrase, and it's, it's nothing to be scared of. And, and again, theology is nothing to be scared of. I know a lot of churches would not use the word. There was a church consultant that came in. They said, don't use that. Don't use words like teach. Don't use words like instruct. That's not good for today's culture. Listen, I'm going to say right now. Theology, teach, and instruct. We just get them all out, all out of the way right now. The image of God in human beings. Listen to this carefully. This will help you a lot. The image of God in human beings 
has been effaced, but it has not been erased. I'll say it one more time. The image of God in human beings has been effaced, but it has not been erased. Even in their fallen state, even even people before they come to Christ are still in the image of God. But the image of God in mankind has been damaged, severely damaged, but it hasn't been destroyed by sin. After, after the fall, Adam could still communicate. He could still think. He could still feel. And he could still act. Um, he still chose. But, but his ability to do each of those was now severely, severely damaged. But even, even for the unsaved, even those who don't have a new nature, they're still, in some sense, they still att- uh, retain the image of God. It's for that reason that we're forbidden to murder anyone, whether they're saved or unsaved. Have you ever wondered about that? You, you're not supposed to murder anyone, be, whether they're saved or they're unsaved, because that person, Genesis 9 will say, will say that that person has been created in God's image, even the unsaved. Whoever sheds the, the blood of any man by man, his blood shall be set shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. That's Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. If unsaved persons were not still in the image of God, then this prohibition against murdering them would make no sense. This, by the way, is also where we get the idea of capital punishment from. It's not a Mosaic law. It's not exclusively in the Mosaic law. Some people become very much dispensational very quickly when it comes to capital punishment. Well, that's, that was for the law. That's not for this period of grace. But then you ask them about other aspects of eschatology. They're not dispensational at all. It's convenient dispensationalism, I would call it. But this goes back before, before the Mosaic law. This is the law of Noah. This is way before Moses. And the reason that murder is wrong and the, the reason... God instituted capital punishment for murder after due process was because mankind still retains some of the image of God, even though that image of God has been severely damaged. Likewise, we said it in James recently, that we're told not to curse one another. I'm not, I'm not to curse you because you have been created in the image of God. James chapter 3, verses 9 through 10 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. We've done that this morning, haven't we? We have blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Make me a servant. We've we've sung praises to our Lord. So James says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. But why is it wrong? Because you have been created in the image of God. And, and I shouldn't curse you, and I shouldn't murder you, whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. That's wrong because you have been created in God's image. In brief, then, sin effaces, in other words, it damages, and it does severely damage. It damages the image of God in mankind, but it does not erase the image of God in human beings. It's marred, but it's not eliminated. Even the most evil human beings retain some semblance of the image of God and God's likeness. So the first thing we see when it comes to total depravity, that every aspect of our being is is damaged, but it hasn't been erased. We can still think, we can still act, we can still feel, but every every aspect of it's been been damaged in some way. Now that damage was such that then we, we can no longer earn God's favor. 
Now, that's the big thing. That's, that's why we have to understand total depravity. It's been effaced. It's, it hasn't been erased, but it's been damaged so much that we can no longer accomplish our own salvation. Now, if you get that, then you'll get what we're saying today. You'll get grace, and your spiritual life is going to be supercharged, like that Shell Extra Special Premium Gasoline. It's going to be supercharged, and things are going to be better for you. But if you don't understand grace, if you don't understand first total depravity and then grace, it's going to be like buying that cheap gasoline with all that gunk that gets on your pistons. It's just not going to, you're going to be a believer, but you're always going to wonder, why am I not getting the mileage I ought to get? It's because we don't have the foundational issues fully understood. The second thing we need to understand about total depravity is that it's extensive not intensive. It's extensive, not intensive. And I understand these are heavy theological concepts, but let me explain it, and I think it'll be, we'll bring it right down to earth. Since the whole person is made in God's image, all of us, and since sin affects the whole person, we should say that the effect of sin in, on God's image is pervasive. It's pervasive, which means it extends to every aspect of our being, body, soul, mind, and will. Earlier on in the history of the church, they thought, well, perhaps the, the, the man's fallenness was only a part of our ability, maybe, maybe our ability to choose, but everything else was okay. Or maybe our ability to think, but our ability to choose was still okay. And there have been theological arguments about this for centuries. But listen, every aspect of our being has been damaged. My mind has been damaged. My my. My emotions have been damaged. Rather than having the appropriate emotion for the appropriate circumstance, sometimes that doesn't work that way. Maybe the appropriate emotion should be love when somebody won't let me in and runs me literally off the road. But it shouldn't be anger. You see, but since I'm a fallen human being, sometimes anger pours forth when maybe love or compassion should pour, pour, pour forth. Maybe they needed to get somewhere really, really fast. They didn't have time to let me in. Or you, or whatever it may be. You see, my, my emotions are fallen. I still have emotions. And occasionally they function well, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes I make good choices, and sometimes you do too, and sometimes you don't. But we still make choices. That's what we mean when we say total depravity is extensive, but it's not intensive. The image of God in man has been, every aspect of the image of God in man, or every aspect of our personality has been, Damage. That's why we say we're not just depraved, we're totally depraved. Now, this is going to help you. When we say we're totally depraved, it just means that my intellect, my emotion, and my will are all damaged. They're not erased, but they're all damaged. But every part of me has been damaged. But here's, here's why. Here's, here's what I, I didn't understand at one time, where my, my friend Miguel Gomez's killers could be called totally depraved, and I could be called totally depraved, because I think they're worse than me. I still think they're worse than me. Because that was a horrid thing to do, to leave that, that young mother without a husband and that young baby without a father. I tell you what, I tell you what, if you, if you ever want to get real about things that happen on the street, try being at the funeral home when the wife comes and sees her husband for the first time. We did that. We were there about 6 o'clock at the funeral home. And I kept telling the people that I was with, let's, let's get out of here. You know, we've done, we've done what we needed to do. We've made our arrangements. Let's get out of here before, I forgot what the wife's name was right now, before she came in, because this is going to be a scene when she gets here. 
and we didn't. And we were there when she got there and the rest of the family arrived. And I'll tell you what, you'll believe in capital punishment then. Because when you see the pain that it costs someone else, when an individual just unmercifully murders someone who's innocent like that, um, you'll, you'll realize that there's a reason that God put that in the scriptures. But with regard to total depravity, it means that every aspect of my being has been damaged. But total depravity does not mean, and get this please, total depravity does not mean that fallen human beings are as sinful as they could be. That's not the point. It doesn't mean that, we, that we're all as sinful as we could be. But it does mean that apart from Christ, we're not as good as we should be. Or that we ought to be to have a relationship with Him. Now do you see why the Scriptures would, re, would, would portray us as being totally depraved? Every aspect of our being has been damaged. But it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. So we, there are things that are horrid. There are things that are just terrible behavior that maybe you've never done. But total depravity means that no matter if you, even if you haven't done those things, you're still not as good, I'm still not as good as I need to be in order to gain God's favor and never can affect it on my own. That's what total depravity means. Now do you see how the scriptures could describe us that way? Even if there are people that are much worse than we are in terms of some of their actions, total depravity does not mean that fallen human beings are as sinful as they could be. But it does mean that apart from Christ, we're not as good as we should be in accordance with God's perfect nature. See, God's standard is perfect holiness. Anything short of that falls short of the glory of God. And we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the quicker we can admit that, the better we're going to be. Sin does penetrate and permeate all of our being. Human beings are born completely, not partially, completely depraved. That is, every aspect of our being is affected by sin. No element of human nature is unaffected by inherited sin, even though no aspect is completely destroyed by it. This is extensive. It extends to every part of my being. It's not intensive, meaning the image of God in man hasn't been erased. You still think. You still act. Even as an unbeliever, you still choose. Now, what are the effects of sin on human nature? First, having a fallen nature means that we're born this way. When we say we're fallen creatures, we're born that way. God doesn't wait until we commit our first sin. And this might be offensive to some ears, but this is the truth. The Bible presents us as being born spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. That's Psalm 51, 5, by the way. The psalmist says, even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Now, we don't think of a little child. When my children were born, I didn't think there's a little sinner that has just come into the world. <laughs> I thought there's a little bundle of joy. you know. I, but I didn't think, well, here's a little totally depraved human being that's coming out here. <laughs> None of us did that. But theologically, that little baby had a damaged intellect, damaged emotions, and damaged will right from the beginning. Now, we might not see that until they're about two years old, maybe three in some cases. But it's there because we're born that way. Second, having a falling nature means that it is natural for us to sin. 
Uh, I didn't have to teach my kids to sin. My parents didn't have to teach me to sin. That just came naturally because that's, that's part of my fallenness. It's not merely an acquired habit. It's a basic inclination. So you don't have to be taught to do any particular sin. Third, having a fallen nature means that it is inevitable for me to sin. Now, this is not an excuse. Don't leave here today saying, well, I'm totally depraved. That's why I'm going to do this this afternoon. It doesn't work that way. Having a fallen nature does mean that it is inevitable for us to sin. Given the opportunity, sin at some time or another is going to manifest itself in our lives. I was in a class one day. I'll never tell you who the professor was. No matter how long you, you torture me, I would not give up this name. But I'll never, never forget that the, the professor got up and said that he hadn't sinned in three weeks. And I leaned to the fellow next to me, and I shouldn't have done it, but I did. And I said, well, he's sinning right now. You know, and he kind of, kind of looks up at me. I wasn't buying that, not for a minute. Three hours, maybe. <laughs> three weeks. Well, you're Superman if you can do that. But... But sin is inevitable, but it's not an excuse. And don't do that. Don't, don't use anything that I say today. So, well, that's just the way I am. You know, I've got this fallen nature, so therefore I'm going to do this. This is not an excuse to sin. But we need to understand where we are theologically. Sin is going to bubble up given the opportunity. In fact, John makes it very clear that if we say we don't sin, we're lying, which is a sin. So you're doing it at that time. So I had a verse for it. <laughs> finally, fourth and finally... Having a fallen nature means that we're incapable of saving ourselves, and that's the most important point I'll make today. Having a fallen nature means that we're incapable of saving ourselves. Now, that's so important because so many people around the planet, around this planet, think that they can somehow be good enough to earn God's favor. Haven't you ever talked to somebody and said, well, are you going to heaven when you die? So, well, I hope so. Well, what do you mean you hope so? So, well, I'm just trying to be good enough. I had somebody tell me that one time. I'm just trying to be good enough. Well, how, how good do you have to be? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm better than, you know, I'm just trying not to be, you know what they're saying? I'm trying not to be that bad. That's what they're really saying. And that's sad. And frankly, percentage-wise, most of the world is in this status right now. You see, there's really only two kind of people in the world, or three if you count people that pretend they're an atheist, but there's not no real atheist out there. They just are pretending to be. There's really two kind of people, those who realize they need a Savior and accept God's gracious gift of salvation, offer of salvation by, by grace through faith, are those that are trying to work their way to heaven in one form or another. There may be people who pretend, well, I don't think there's an afterlife, but deep down they really know there is one. So they're either trying to be good enough, or they have realized they can't be good enough and have trusted Christ. That's really the only two types of people. But the most important thing that I'll tell you today is that having a fallen nature, being born this way, means that we are incapable of saving ourselves, no matter how good we try to be. We're still sinners by nature and practice. And as such, we cannot enter God's perfect heaven without Jesus Christ. Now, I made an assumption a few moments ago. Perhaps you caught it. I assumed that everyone in here had trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. Now, maybe that assumption shouldn't have been made. If you came this morning and you've never, you've never come to the point where you understand that you need a Savior, that, that, yeah, maybe you've done a lot of good things, but no matter how many good things you've done, it will never add up to God's perfection. If, if you've never come to that situation and personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive those sins and to grant you eternal life, I want to give you an opportunity to do it now. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to come up here. We don't do that. Right where you sit, you don't even have to nod your head. 
You don't even have to blink, but if that's the position that you're in today, you may consider Jesus Christ, because apart from him, there is no getting to heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. It's the only way, and he's offering it to you. And I know right now he's speaking to your soul as hard as you're trying to shut him off. As hard as you're trying to look the other way and think, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's, that's between you and God. They're, they're, it's not between you and me. But if that's what you're thinking right now, just realize there are no guarantees on the future. People die every day, no matter how old you are or how young you are. And I deeply desire for you a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to go to heaven when you die. So if you're resisting it right now, don't. You don't even have to stand up. You don't have to say anything out loud. In the privacy of your own soul and thoughts, you can say, Father, I understand that I need a Savior. I understand I have, I have not been good enough to get to heaven, and nor could I ever be. I realize Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day, and I'm trusting him to forgive those sins and grant me eternal life. Something like that. You can even say, Father, right now I'm trusting Jesus Christ. Something as simple as that. Don't wait. Don't wait. This may be your only opportunity. So perhaps I assumed wrong before. Forgive me. But we, since we have a fallen nature, we cannot earn our way to heaven. We can't do it. We sin because we're sinners. We can't earn our way to heaven. Now there are four final things, and I'll close with these. I said that's what having a sinful nature means. Now there's four things that having a sinful nature does not mean. First, Having a sinful nature does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be. It could always get worse. And as soon as we think it can't get any worse, then that's, that is Satan has got you right where he wants you. It doesn't mean they're as sinful as we could be. It just means we're not as good as we should be. So when we say total depravity, it means we're not as good as we should be, and there's no way we can earn our way to heaven. That's what it means. We had to have grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Unmerited favor. All that God is free to do for us on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Second, having a sinful nature does not mean that sin is excusable. Don't ever say before God, well, you made me this way. It's not his fault. We cannot use our fallenness as an excuse to sin. We're responsible for every sin that we commit, and that's all confession of sin really is as a believer, isn't it? Say, Lord, I did it. I'm responsible for it. What I did was sinful. It was wrong. I confess it. That's confession of sin. We're responsible for it. Don't put it off on someone else. We're going to see next week, Adam tried to put it off on Eve. Eve tried to put it off on the serpent. Each of them had to assume responsibility for their own actions. Third, having a fallen nature does not mean that we're unable to avoid sin, though. It doesn't mean that it's inevitable that we're going to do everything that is wrong, but... If we were unable to avoid sin, then we wouldn't be responsible for our own sins. But we are responsible. You see, if, if, if it's just really God made me this way, I have no choice in the matter, then I'm not really responsible that way, am I? No, I'm not. But we are responsible. So we are able to avoid sin. Now, this is as believers, because we have a new nature, we're able to avoid sin. And we should. And fourth, and finally, having a fallen nature does not mean that we have no choice in our salvation. I believe that that's an inappropriate application of total depravity to the doctrine of salvation. We do have a choice 
in our salvation. Now, while the unaided, and that's the key word, while the unaided human will cannot believe unto salvation, nevertheless, all who are willing to receive God's free gift of salvation are aided by the Holy Spirit, aided by His grace to that end. He not only wants us all to be saved, He provided for the salvation of everybody. God desires all men to be saved. And He made salvation possible for all men. Now, if He desires it, and He made salvation possible for everybody, yet some people are saved and some people aren't, then that means it's thrown right back onto you and to me. We choose. Now, He had to enable us to do that. Granted, apart from God, there's nobody going to come to God. But he did make it possible for everybody, and that's very important. Well, that's total depravity. You might not have thought yourself depraved before you came in. And I hope you realize what depravity means now. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. It doesn't mean I'm as bad as I could be, but it means we're not as good as we should be in order to gain God's favor. Jesus Christ had to provide for our salvation. When Adam took the fruit from the hand of the woman and ate it, the results were devastating. But in grace, God has provided a way out for those who humble themselves and place their faith, their faith alone, in Christ alone, for the forgiveness of sins and for the receiving of eternal life. If you've never done that, my prayer is that you will consider it now. Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we learn that Perhaps we're not as bad as someone else, but we're still nowhere near good enough to earn your favor. We thank you, Father, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was yet rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the incredible riches that you provide at Christ's expense. We know someone had to pay for it, and we know that someone wasn't us. We're humbled by that. We thank you for it. And Father... Now that we understand this better, help us to use this as motivation to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into a deeper, more personal relationship with you, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.